Okay, so let's start with a more in-depth review of our uh, view of the covenants. Uh, and where I want to spend most of our time is uh, with the covenants Genesis 3 and beyond. Uh, I want to review for ourselves quickly just uh, the, the typical structure and the way the covenants are understood uh, in more covenantal thinking. Um, so one, uh, a covenant of redemption before time began, so especially looking at Luke 2, 29, Christ was covenanted a kingdom by the Father, and Christ covenants a kingdom with his disciples, that's the word that's used. Titus 1, 2, God who promised beforehand, promised salvation beforehand, to whom did he promise salvation? When did God make those promises? God made a decree with the Son in uh, Psalm 2, 7. The decree is, uh, when, when was the decree made? The decree is, is covenant language. Hebrews 7, 20 through 21. You can look at your hermeneutics notes if we want to dive deeper into this. But God swore that you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek by an oath. And when was that swearing done? So the, the covenant in, between the Father and the Son is how it's typically been understood. Uh, that the Son would redeem people whom the Father had chosen. If you, want to call it, if you don't want to call it a covenant, that's, that's fine, right? Covenant language is used in the Bible to describe it. And I think the word covenant is used in Luke twenty two twenty nine. However, I'm not going to get hung up on, <laughs> you want to call it God's promise with the members of the Trinity, you want to call it God's covenant. I, in short, God made a plan to redeem certain people before time began. God's plan to redeem people didn't come about because of the fall. It came about because he always planned to redeem the elect through Christ. And that's the confidence that we have that God will carry out his covenant purposes. It's, it's our confidence that the covenant of grace will become effective in our lives, is that God has made a pre-temporal pre covenant, and there's no one better for him to swear by, so he swears by himself, so he will keep all of his promises. Second, we talked about a covenant of work, so a covenant before the fall in which Adam... Adam was made innocent, um, but he was given the opportunity to eat of the tree of life if he obeyed, right? Uh, Hosea 6, 7 says that God made a covenant with Adam. could be referring to all of humanity, but even if it is referring to all of humanity, it's referring to a covenant made uh, that we don't have explicit record of in Scripture. Even if it isn't a covenant with Adam, meaning all humanity and not with the person Adam, it's pointing towards a pre-fall covenant, I think. And we see the covenant elements in Genesis 2 that we talked about earlier, and Romans 5 best makes sense of the Adam-Christ relationship, in that Adam failed to obey, uh, and so brings the covenant of death, and Christ obeys, so brings the covenant of life. Let's, let's go on then to uh, understanding the covenants of grace. And especially trying to understand the unity between those covenants. Because I think once you understand this, you really start to understand how the story of the Bible fits together. Now what covenant do you think we're going to start with? Where are we going to start? If we're talking about the unity of the covenants of grace. Where would you start? No, Brian. No, Brian. No, Mikey. No, Mikey. No, Faisal. No, Faisal. If we're going to talk about the unity of the covenants, what chapter of the Bible would you go to? 
We're going to start with the unity of the covenants of grace. What's that? Ephesians? No. No, no, no. Yes. Why Genesis 6? Or are you just throwing it out there, right? Hey, if you're, if you're right because you guess, you're still right. Isn't that right? Good. Let's look at uh, Genesis 6, 8. Hey, it, no, 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 it, it still counts, my friend. It still counts. Genesis 6.18. Do you remember the language you saw in Genesis 17 of God establishing his covenant with, with Abraham and also establishing his covenant with Isaac? And we said that What's being used there is covenant renewal language. This is the argument, again, that uh, is made in Kingdom Through Covenant. I think it's an excellent book. I, I don't agree with all their conclusions, um, but I think for the most part, I, I, lo- I mean, it's a fantastic book. I love it. And they make the observation here that in Genesis 6.18, when God says he will establish his covenant with Noah, the word that's used here is not the word that's used for cutting a covenant. God does not cut a covenant with Noah. God does not create a new covenant with Noah. God confirms his covenant with Noah. When when he says he establishes his covenant, it's the existing covenant that he causes to rest on Noah and on his descendants. Um, And what's what's implicit here is that it's a, a covenant partnership that God makes with Noah uh, and with all of his family um, by electing grace, right? All of the world is wicked and God sets his favor on, a, on one man, right? In verse 8. And God sets his favor on Noah prior to Noah's obedience, right? All the world is disobedient, but Noah finds favor. Noah finds grace. And because of the grace that God finds in Noah, God, or that God gives to Noah, the, the mercy, the grace, the compassion, he makes a covenant, right? He doesn't make a covenant to establish the relationship, or he confirms the covenant with Noah. Not to establish the relationship. The relationship was created by divine, sovereign, electing grace. God didn't choose Noah because he was better than the other people. And then... Um, And then the implications of that are for him and his children and his family, right? Here are the elements of the covenant here. God and Noah. If we look, if we look at Genesis 9 with the official establishment, the, 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 the covenant is said, God said he will establish his covenant, confirm his covenant in verse 18 of chapter 6. But it's not until we get to Genesis, the end of Genesis 8, God remembering Noah also. That's, we see that in the Exodus also. God remembers his covenant with his people. That's, that's an act that God does in, act in covenant faithfulness. But towards the end of Genesis 8, God begins to declare the stipulations of the covenant. Who are the covenant members in this Noahic covenant? Uh-huh, God and God and creation, yeah. 
So it's, it's God and, and Noah, certainly, but because it's with God and Noah, it is with God in creation, because Noah, in the Genesis narrative, serves as a second kind of Adam, doesn't he? So in that he makes the covenant with Noah, it has implications for his family. It also has implications for all of the world. So verses 9 and 10, he makes the covenant with you and your seed and with every living being which is with you, birds and animals and descendants and wild animals. Verse 12, between me and you and every living being which is with you. Verse 13, between me and the earth. Verse 15, between me and you and every living being among all flesh. Verse 17, between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So the covenant parties are both God and Noah, and because God is, is God and Noah, and because God and Noah, God and all of creation, by virtue of Noah. So what are the obligations of the covenant? Who has obligations? God. Does Noah have any obligations in the covenant? There's law given, right? Are there, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Noah does have obligations in the covenant. No doubt. Noah has duties that he must perform in the covenant. Noah must obey. But if Noah doesn't obey, what are the, are the consequences that the covenant is broken? Are the consequences that Noah is no longer in the covenant? No. At the end of the day, the maintaining of the covenant relationship rests wholly on God, right? It doesn't mean that Noah has nothing to do. He has no duties in the covenant. There's no law given, right? Grace doesn't mean that there's no law. But grace does mean that law is not the means of acquiring relationship. Law tells us how to function within the relationship, right? It's very important that we have our gospel law distinction in mind when we come to these covenants. Otherwise, we're going to read these covenants, obligations, as the means of acquiring the relationship. But the relationship was acquired because Noah found favor in the eyes of God. God chose Noah. The obligations of faithfulness rest ultimately on God in the covenant. Look at uh, Genesis 9, 9. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Every creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast that is with you, as many as came out of the ark, for every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the clouds. The word is the bow for an archer. There wasn't a different word used for a rainbow by the Hebrews. It's a single word that's used of an archer's bow. And it's pointed towards heaven. It's not pointed towards earth. Because God, the warrior, has put his bow, he's hung up his bow, so that it points not down, but up. God looks at the covenant sign and he remembers, right? Noah doesn't remember by looking at the covenant sign. God does. Because the ultimate obligations of 
the covenant being maintained don't rest upon the faithfulness of Noah. Noah certainly has, obliga certainly has obligations in the covenant, but if the covenant's going to be broken, God's going to be the one who breaks it. God's going to be the one who destroys it, which he's never going to. The, the continued existence of the covenant does not rest upon the faithfulness of Noah, but the faithfulness of God. Does that make sense? This is essential when we get to the New Covenant, understanding the way that law functions in the New Covenant, right? When we don't fulfill the law that God has given to us, that doesn't mean that the covenant has been destroyed because the faithfulness of the covenant rests upon God and not upon us. The covenant is maintained because God is faithful, not because we are. And Noah, Noah gets drunk, right? Does that mean the covenant is gone? No. Noah's drunkenness does not mean the covenant goes away. Noah failed to subdue the earth. Noah failed to rule over it rightly, just like Adam did. But unlike Adam, the covenant is maintained. He's not exiled. He's not kicked out of the garden. God's faithfulness endures. That's why it's called an everlasting covenant in verses 12 and 16. It's an everlasting covenant for all generations. It rests ultimately on God and his covenant faithfulness, not upon the human members of the covenant. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Yes, you're exactly right. Yeah, which is an evidence that the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinai Covenant is a covenant of grace and not a covenant of works. Because even when the people are unfaithful to it, the covenant is maintained because God is faithful. But we'll talk more about that when we get to the Sinai Covenant. It's a great observation. But we have to understand how law and grace function and how covenant obligations function. Otherwise, you're going to be terrified every day that God's going to be unfaithful to you, right? You're going to think that because you've messed up again, the covenant is broken. And, and the faithfulness, you're going to feel like the faithfulness of the covenant rests upon you. It doesn't. God looks at the covenant sign and he remembers. Good. Rewards and penalties. What are the rewards and penalties that we see here? It's just rewards for the people, right? The reward is that God is never going to destroy the world again. He binds himself to creation. And he does so in this covenant so that he will take the covenant curses upon himself if the covenant is broken, right? That's why the bow is pointed towards heaven. God would never punish his creation for their unfaithfulness. God would never punish his creation for its unfaithfulness, for their unfaithfulness in the Noahic covenant. Right? Or not in a sense that he will destroy the world. That's what's being promised here. Of course there's eternal ramifications for disobeying God. 
However, the, the Noahic covenant endures because of God, not because of creation. We don't have to worry that we're going to wake up today and God's going to destroy all of creation because we've been unfaithful. Right? Because God's eternally faithful to his covenants. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's laws within the covenant. But what's the penalty for breaking the laws? Is the, co- is the covenant torn up? Yeah. There's obligations. There's death, for sure. But it doesn't mean that God is going to, because someone kills another person, we don't have to worry that God's going to destroy the world. God's going to maintain his covenant faithfulness even when people are covenantly unfaithful. Yeah, good, good. And is it strictly binding? Most definitely. It's an eternal covenant. It'll last forever. And the covenant sign, of course, is the rainbow. The purpose is a reminder to the covenant parties. And for most covenant signs, both parties look upon this covenant sign and remember their obligation. Right? It's kind of how, how wedding rings function today. I look at my wedding ring and I remember my obligation, don't I? Is, but do I become unmarried if the wedding ring falls off? No. But it reminds me of my obligation to my wife. But uniquely in this covenant, only God looks at the rainbow, right? Only God looks at it and remembers. The purpose of the sign is for God to remember and for Noah to be reassured. When Noah looks at the rainbow, he's not intended to remember. He's intended to remember his obligation to the covenant. He looks at the rainbow and remembers that God remembers. <laughs> right? He doesn't remember that he needs to remember. He looks at it and remembers that God is the one who remembers the covenant. So the purpose, the purpose of this covenant then is to secure all of God's other covenant blessings. All of God's other covenant promises because if the world continues to endure then the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Then Abraham can have offspring as many as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. There can be a world and a land for God's people to inherit and God can be a blessing to the nations because there's a world that continues to exist. David can reign on a throne because there's a world that continues to exist. The people of Israel can inherit a land because there's a world that continues to exist. Good. Um, Let's talk a little bit more. Let me see here. We noted earlier that the word for cutting a covenant does not occur in these texts. What's used is affirming a covenant, reestablishing a covenant. This is a quote from Gentry. God is not initiating a covenant with Noah, but rather is affirming for Noah and his descendants a commitment initiated previously. That's what he means in Genesis 6. The language clearly denotes a covenant established earlier between God and creation, or between God and humans at creation. When God says he is affirming or upholding his covenant with Noah, he is saying that he is committed to his creation, the care of the creator to preserve, provide for, and rule over all that he has made, including the blessings and ordinances that he initiated through Adam and Eve and their family. Now go to Noah and his descendants. I think he's spot on. I think he's exactly right. 
There's a lot of similarities also between the Noah story and the Adam story that uh, I wanted to get into, but we, we simply don't have time to do. And I, I think your Torah class probably covered those already. Any questions with that before we move on to the Noahic covenant? Okay, let's talk about um, God's covenant with Adam. We could talk about God's covenant with Adam in the sense of the, the pre-fall covenant. Um, God, God has a covenant, first of all, with all of creation that we see in Jeremiah 33, for instance. Look at, we'll look at two texts. Jeremiah 33, 20 through 26. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with, with the day and my covenant with the night, so that the day and night do not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with Dave and my servant may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on the throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sand of sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David and my servant, the Levitical priests who minister to me. God's faithfulness to his covenant that it be day and night is the security of his faithfulness to the covenant to David, his new covenant, and his Levitical covenant, and his uh, Abrahamic covenant. But compare this to Jeremiah 31, 35. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and fixes the order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel shall cease, and, the, and being a nation before me forever. This seems to indicate some kind of general covenant when we compare these two texts with all of creation that is different from the covenant made with Noah, right? Because the covenant made with Noah is not a covenant that the signs in the heavens will continue, but something that the earth will endure. We mentioned Hosea 6-7 also as indication as a, at least a covenant with Adam, with, with all of humanity, if not a covenant with a specific individual. Though I, I'm convinced that Hosea 6-7 is in reference to a, a covenant with the, the person Adam. But even if we think about um, how covenants and temples functioned in the ancient world uh, and the images... Uh, I think there's clear indications that a covenant is being created in Genesis 1 and 2. And it makes the most sense of Romans 5 and Revelation 22 with access to the tree of life to see a covenant there. But let's move on to Genesis 3, 14 through 19. Now, what do we call God's promises here? Um... I think, it, I think it makes most sense to think of this in covenantal language, that God is covenantly binding himself to his creation. Um, Robertson calls this the covenant of commencement, actually. That's interesting language. Um, I'm fine calling it the covenant with Adam, the promise given to Adam, whatever you'd like. But foundational to, the, un, to understanding how the covenants function in the Bible is understanding this promise that God gives in Genesis 3.15. And the, so that all the other expressions of God's faith, covenant faithfulness flow out of this. And in fact, language, uh, Genesis 3.15 language is even used in Romans 16, I believe verse 20, to show the ongoing effects, the continuity of the covenant promise that's made here. 
But the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now what's, what's interesting about God's promise in verse 15? Who's he speaking to? The serpent, right? He's not speaking to the woman. He's not speaking to the man. It's actually as God pronounces the curse for the serpent that the promise of the gospel first comes. Right? A man overhears God promising the serpent that he will be crushed. And in that he finds hope. Enmity is established between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And who, who is the woman's seed? Ultimately, Jesus Christ, right? And the church in that we're united to Christ, as Romans 16.20 says, the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 comes in the cross, but it also comes as the works of Satan in this world are pushed back, as uh, the Satan is put under the feet of the church and that they're united to Christ. Was there a question, Mikey, on that? Okay, sounds good. I used to be an auctioneer, so... Good. Let's consider next the covenant made with Abraham. What are, our, what are our chapters that we need for the covenant with Abraham? 15, 17, and one more. 12. You need to memorize those chapters. Genesis 12, 15, and 17. So in chapter 12, he establishes the relationship. Actually, at the end of chapter 11, he establishes the relationship. Similar to Noah, right? because Abraham is an idol worshiper, most likely. Um, and, he co- and God sets his favor upon him and chooses him to go to a different land. And then in 15, the covenant is established, and in 17, it's confirmed. So as, in the placement of the narrative, this is a story looking for promised offspring, right? It's a story looking for promised offspring, and it focuses on a man and a woman who can't have children. That's precisely what, where God likes to work in, in uh, unlikely situations. And he likes to accomplish his redemptive purposes in ways that often appear counterintuitive. A great example that we've seen already is a, uh, all the animals going onto a boat <laughs> to be rescued through floodwaters when, water, when it's never even rained on the earth yet. God often uses means that seem counterintuitive to bring up about his redemption. And the story of God making a name for himself in the world focuses on an idol worshiper. You feel the irony of that? Because God isn't looking for covenant partners who are perfect. He looks for people who he can choose and mold for his purposes. And so once again, the covenant is purely by grace for Abraham. It's not a result of works. And just as Noah found favor in God's eyes, so Abraham is chosen out of all these genealogies, right? So you have the genealogy in chapter 10, um, which is different than the genealogy in chapter 5, right? So it, it creates this idea of this massive group of people in chapter 10 for the purpose of highlighting election. These are the generations of Noah, Shem, Ham, J- and Japheth. And sons were born to them. And then he gives you all the descendants of Japheth. And man, there's a lot of them. And all the descendants of Ham. And man, there's a lot of them. Canaan, so that's fathering, following the Ham line. Then we go back to Shem, and we have all of these descendants. Then we get the Tower of Babel story. We get this idea that there's a mass group of people in this world. For the purpose of highlighting God's electing grace, he chooses Abraham out of all of these people on the earth. And then notice then that Abraham's roles in the covenant. 
They're by grace alone. So God changes the command to be fruitful and multiply and transforms it to, I will make you fruitful and I will multiply you in the Abrahamic covenant. Good, so let's look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. What are the three things that are promised to Abraham? Land, good. Land, offspring, nation, yeah. And blessing. Land, offspring, and blessing. So in the same way, you, you need to know Genesis 12, 15, and 17. In the same way, you need to know land, offspring, and blessing. So I say, what are the three things that are promised in the Abrahamic covenant? Land, offspring, blessing. I say, what are the texts for the Abrahamic covenant? Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. Good. And notice how this covenant starts. Just like creation begins with God speaking, so this covenant begins with God speaking, right? Abraham doesn't initiate anything. God simply comes to Abraham one day and says, Go, you are going to be my covenant partner. Right? So what are the obligations of the covenant? The covenant parties are obvious. What are the obligations of the covenant? In Genesis 12. To go. Yeah, leave your country, leave your family, and go to a land I will show you. Do you see actually how, how those three stand in contrast to the three promises? What are the three promises? What are the three promises? Land, offspring, and blessing. So leave your country and go to the land I will show you, right? You leave your land, but you can go to the land I will give you. Leave your family, and I will make of you a great nation. Leave your father's house, the place of security and blessing and stability, and I will bless you, and I will make you a blessing. Good, and then for God, what, what are the obligations? Yeah, that he's going to give Abraham all the things that he promised, right? Good. So what are the rewards and penalties? Are there any penalties mentioned here? No. What are the rewards? The three things. What are the three things? Land, offspring, and blessing. I'll make your great name great also. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And you and all families of the world will be blessed. Name, our great nation, land, and blessing. Land, offspring, blessing. And is it strictly binding? There's no option given to Abraham here, right? Go if you'd like to. No, it's, it's, hey, go. Go. There's no negotiation involved. Which again, if we, if we uh, look at the Schofield Study Bible, you know, you know what um, he said when the Israelites were asked to, are, uh, were given the law at Mount Sinai? You know what his note in the Schofield Bible says in Genesis 20, or in, Genesis, or in Exodus 19? It says, the children of Israel should have responded with, no, we don't want this. We want grace. We don't want law. As if they had any say in the matter. <laughs> I think it foundationally misunderstands how the Exodus 20 laws function in the Bible story. But also as if, as if God doesn't sovereignly administer covenants. He chooses covenant partners. They don't have say in the matter. Let's consider uh, Genesis 15. 
So again, the covenant partners are God and Abraham. But if we, if we consider Genesis 15, what are the rewards and penalties? This is where it becomes most clear where this is in the Abrahamic covenant. What's that? Okay, I'm going to give you one more chance. Death. Death. <laughs> well done. Well done. Death, yeah. Death for who? Who's threatened with death in Genesis 15? God. Not Abraham. All of the all of the reward the all of the penalties. We know what the rewards are, right, from Genesis 12, but all the penalties of the covenant fall squarely on God, not on Abraham. So then is it strictly binding? Most certainly it is. It's bound by God's faithfulness to his own covenant. So then we get to chapter 17. What are the obligations in chapter 17? This is essential. It's essential we understand the, that God takes all the penalties on himself when we get to Genesis 17. Because otherwise we're going to misunderstand the commands in 17. 17.1. Be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. That's the obligation. Is that how Abraham acquires covenant relationship with God? No. It is an obligation. But at the end of the day, just like the Noahic covenant... It solely rests upon God himself. The covenant will continue because God is the one who walked through the animals. And at the end of the day, if, if Abraham is not blameless, if Abraham does not faithfully walk before God blamelessly, it doesn't mean that God will be unfaithful. It doesn't mean that the covenant has been torn in two because God binds himself to his covenants. And God will take the penalty if there is any penalty that needs to be brought forth. But then in Genesis 17, 3 through 8, we see God's obligations. What are God's obligations in Genesis 17? Yeah, his promises. God restates his promises again to Abraham. God will be faithful. And then we get Abraham's obligation with the covenant sign, right? But even that covenant sign is an expression of grace. Because Abraham was already in the covenant. He did not do the covenant sign to become part of the covenant. He was already in the covenant when he acquired the covenant sign. Right? Which is one of Paul's major arguments. That circumcision did not make Paul part of the covenant, or <laughs> did not make Abraham part of the covenant. What made, Paul part, what made Abraham part of the covenant was God's electing sovereign grace. And God walking through the animals while Abraham was asleep. Right? We can think more about these covenant signs. I made the argument earlier that the stars of the sky in Genesis 15.5 serve as a kind of covenant sign. But even there's no obligation for Abraham. Like the rainbow. Abraham simply must look up, see the stars. And as he sees the stars, he remembers God will be faithful to the covenant. God will keep the promises. And he receives faith from it. And that's, what he, that's actually what he does. Look at Genesis 15, verse 6. God gives the covenant sign. In response to that, Abraham believes and he's counted as righteous. 
The result of the covenant sign is creating faith. So in circumcision in chapter 17 is not punishment. It's not punishment. It's not chastisement. It's not works-based righteousness. You would think that unless you forget, you would think that if you forget everything we know about covenant signs so far to think that circumcision is some kind of judgment from God. It's not. It's a reminder to Abraham that he's going to have children. He's going to have children. And it, it, it's intended to build his faith like the stars of the sky were. So the covenant is given to Abraham and his family, right? And so the covenant signs also given to all of them. Any questions about that? Yeah. Seventeen fourteen. Yeah. Yeah. To reject circumcision is to reject the covenant. Yeah, um, because remember the close connection we said between covenant signs and covenants earlier? So that even in Genesis 17, it's hard to tell, wait, what's the covenant? Is the covenant circumcision or is the covenant the promise? To reject the covenant sign is to reject the covenant, right? To reject the covenant sign is to reject the covenant. So the covenant sign did not merit Abraham's placement in the covenant, but it certainly confirmed it. It wasn't a means of works-based righteousness. And Paul makes that clear in Romans 4, right? He was already part of God's covenant by grace. So this isn't Josh saying this. This is, Paul, this is Josh summarizing Paul's interpretation of these chapters. But yeah, to reject the covenant sign is to reject the covenant. And that has strong implications for the new covenant, I think, also. Yeah, I think that for Abraham, Abraham stands unique. Again, I'm, I'm reading this way that Paul reads it, right? So I'm confident in my interpretation because that's how Paul reads it. Um, but this is for the uncircumcised males who, draw, who are part of Abraham's slaves, his family, and things like that. Abraham, however, is brought into the covenant by faith, and there's implications for his family. However, if his family... If his family refuses the covenant sign, they refuse the covenant itself, I think, is what's being said. But yeah, I think that has strong implications for the new covenant. It's a good question, though. But because Paul interprets Romans 4, 9 through 12, let's look at that. Is the blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he already had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. He already was part of the covenant. He was already righteousness. And the, sign, the covenant sign was given to him to confirm it. But to reject the covenant sign is to reject the covenant, I think. Yeah. The rainbow? Most definitely. They're both called covenant signs. Both of them were intended to be looked upon and to create faith. 
So our baptism functions in a similar way, I think, and so does the Lord's Supper. We look upon those, and it creates faith in our hearts. And to our dearly beloved Presbyterian brothers, I would say this. Did Abraham receive the sign of circumcision before or after he was justified? After. I love my Presbyterian brothers. I most, I most certainly do, but I think that Paul's argument... The he- Hebrews is an implicit argument. I mean, this is also an implicit argument, but the covenant sign was given to him as a seal of his righteousness, as a seal of his covenant status. So let's think about this in, in, in relationship to Jesus. Look at Galatians 15. I'm sorry, Galatians 3.15. To give an, a human example, brothers, even when a man-made covenant, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. So Paul, Paul makes a, uh, a very interesting exegetical comment here. If I say offspring, how many am I talking about? Right? It's like the word deer in English. If I say deer, yeah, deer the animal. If I say deer, how many deer am I talking about? You don't say deers. Yeah. No, you're good. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, so deer functions the same way in English, like offspring. You don't really know how many you're talking about. Now, certainly, if you're reading Genesis, um, you'd be assuming it's multiple offspring. But Paul, Paul is a little coy here, actually, I think, when he says he does not say offsprings. Like, makes up a word. It, makes, it like, doesn't even make sense. But he, he's making an exegetical point from it. He doesn't say offsprings as referring to many children, but he, referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. So who are the covenant promises made to? Abraham and Jesus. The covenant promises are made to Abraham and to Jesus. Jesus is the other covenant partner. (laughs) When it says to you and your offspring, I will give this land. To you and your offspring, I will give this blessing. It's to you and Jesus. That's what Paul is arguing. Yeah. Yeah. From my understanding of it, it is. Um, Yeah, from my understanding of it, it is. I'm not going to, I'm not a... My Greek is decent. My Hebrew is terrible. Yeah, seed. Seed functions the same way also. But, uh, yeah, I guess, actually, yeah, I guess it's a little less clear, right? Seed and seeds, because you can say seeds, uh, but you can't say offsprings. Offsprings isn't a word, right? Yeah, Emmanuel. I doubt it. How do we know that Christ is the offspring? Yeah, I think if you were reading Genesis, you would think it's Isaac. Or you would think it's all of his descendants, right? But one of Paul's foundational arguments for interpreting the Abrahamic covenant is that not all... First, in Romans 9, he says that just because he says you and your offspring, it doesn't mean that every descendant of Abraham, right, is the offspring. But then here, he... He, I mean, Paul, Paul reinterprets, I think, Moses. Paul sees something here that my, I don't think Moses saw. 
he makes the covenant to you and your offspring, who is Christ. Jesus is Abraham's offspring. And that's foundational for understanding our role in the covenant, right? Because if Jesus is Abraham's offspring, then, the end of three, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. If you are united to the one who is Abraham's offspring, then you are the children of Abraham. The children of Abraham are not by blood, but by union with the one who is the offspring of Abraham. See, I think we can say Jesus is the new Isaac in one way, Emmanuel. Um, Jesus, is, Jesus is the new Isaac because he is the true offspring. But, I mean, even within the, the, the Isaac being offered story, there's hints of that, right? Because the wood is laid upon the back of the son as he goes up the mountain where he's going to be sacrificed. Um, he goes there and the father is going to kill the son, um, but God ultimately doesn't call Abraham to do something that only he will do. Only God will kill his son. Only God will pour out his wrath on his son. And so there's a dual typology there, right? Because not only is Isaac the son who will receive death from the father, but he's also uh, Jesus is also the ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Why is it significant it's caught by its horns? Because it's without blemish, that's one. But two, because Jesus had a crown of thorns on his head. He's caught in a thorn bush, the ram, right? <laughs> Mikey just figured out his biblical theology paper. Actually, a biblical theology of thorns would be fascinating, because where was the first time we see thorns in the Bible? The curse, right, is an expression of the uh, thorns coming out of the ground. So when Jesus has the crown of thorns placed upon his head, it symbolizes him taking the curse upon himself also, right? He fully identifies with us in our humanity, and he fully takes the curse upon himself. But he's also the ram who's caught in the thicket. So Abraham's, Abraham's covenant ultimately is with Jesus. And if it's with Jesus, it's with the church. It's with the spiritual offspring of Abraham, not the physical offspring of Abraham. Because not all descendants of Abraham are Abraham, and not all Israel is Israel. Any questions on that? Okay. Let's move on to the Sinai Covenant. I want you to think for a second. Get into the mind of someone who says the Sinai Covenant is a covenant of works. Okay? The Sinai Covenant is a covenant of works. It's a covenant that the people had to obey in order to obtain eternal life, in order to have right standing before God. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a different way of salvation, right? It's a different way of salvation post-fall. 